How many of you are familiar with, at least heard of, if not watched, the television show Running Wild with Bear Grylls? How many of you are at least semi-familiar with that? Okay. Bear Grylls is a gentleman who served in the British Army Reserves with the 21st Special Air Services Unit. It's a special ops service, a special ops unit that's very similar to our Navy SEALs. And um, Bear Grylls served in that. And according to Wikipedia, the Special Air Services, SAS, undertakes a number of roles including covert reconnaissance, counterterrorism, direct action, and hostage rescue. Much of the information and actions regarding the SAS are highly classified and are not commented on by either the British government nor the Ministry of Defense due to the sensitivity of their operations. And again, it's, it's Britain's equivalent of the Navy SEALs, Army Rangers sort of thing. Wikipedia goes on to say that Bear Grylls served in the SAS, quote, as a trooper trained in unarmed combat, desert and winter warfare, survival, climbing, parachuting, and explosives. Becoming a survival instructor, he was twice posted to North Africa. In 2004, Grills was rewarded the honorary rank of Lieutenant Commander in the Royal Naval Reserve, and in 2013, he was awarded the honorary rank of Lieutenant Colonel in the Royal Marines Reserve. Now, if you want to know any more about Bear Grills, you can go online and you can look up. He has a long, extensive, line of very impressive accomplishments over time, but for sake of time in this sermon, let's just suffice it to say that he is very highly trained and he is very well accomplished in his field. So, in this TV show, Running Wild with Bear Grylls, what he does is he serves as the more than capable, that's the whole point, the more than capable survival guide who leads a different Hollywood celebrity out into some of the most remote and untamed environments on the planet. Environments where they are dropped off with few to no supplies, and they have to learn to face some of their fears and overcome them. They have to learn to forage for food and climb cliffs and cross rivers, and sometimes they even come into close contact with deadly poisonous snakes or with predators as they're going through this wilderness. Now, as I think about that particular idea, it's similar to some of those movies that we watch with that all too familiar theme. It, it seems like there's countless movies with this theme where there's this one person or this group, small group of people and they're dropped off behind enemy lines somewhere, and they have a very specific mission that they have to accomplish. They must engage the enemy while avoiding death or capture at the same time. And then they, just like on this running wild with Bear grill, same idea, at the end, they have to make it to this extraction point, and that's kind of the running wild with Bear grills thing, is they, they go through all of this, and they come to, to some predetermined extraction point like war movies, they come to some predetermined extraction point after they've accomplished their mission. 
And so as I thought about all of that, as I thought about the particular storyline that's portrayed and played out in, in both of those instances, I couldn't help but think of Jesus. I couldn't help but think about how well those storylines, in a way, help to illustrate what Jesus came here and accomplished. Think about this. Jesus, the Son of God, God in the flesh, was, in some senses, dropped off behind enemy lines, was he not? He was dropped off here where the enemy Satan is. Jesus was dropped off, in a sense, in this wilderness of, of sin and death. I mean, God in the flesh came to earth and, and made himself vulnerable, and, and he's here where, where sin and Satan are in this, this wilderness. And Jesus, like those shows, like those movies, like that show, had a very specific mission that he was out to accomplish. Jesus came to accomplish a very specific mission, to seek and save the lost. He came also, as part of his mission, to give his life as a ransom for many and to establish that Old Testament kingdom, an outpost, if you will, here in, here in this environment where, where sin and death are all over the place. He came to establish a kingdom, an outpost of heaven, as it were. That was his mission. Jesus, while he was here, engaged the enemy on every level, every level, while avoiding death or capture, until his own predetermined time when he allowed himself to be captured and killed. And then finally, Jesus, at just the right time, according to his own timetable, or his father's timetable, with perfect heavenly timing, Jesus eventually reached his extraction point, didn't he? On the Mount of Olives. And he was then, just like in the show, running wild with Bear grills, if you will, he was airlifted, if you want to use that term, back to home and safety in heaven. So you can see that there's a lot of parallels there as we talk about the Lord. Mission accomplished. And as I consider those sorts of movies as well, shows, I can't help but think about how fitting of an illustration they provide us, you and me, for our spiritual lives, beginning from the moment that we rise up out of the baptistry. I want you to consider these parallels. You see, at the exact moment that we rise up out of the baptistry, we find ourselves dropped off, as it were, in a suddenly very hostile world. A suddenly very hostile and enemy world, a world of sin and darkness and temptation in which we are trying to be soldiers of light and right. Is that not correct? So we're kind of, you can see that illustration. It is an enemy world wherein we must be constantly aware of the potential death and danger or capture which lurks behind every moment and around every corner. A world wherein we must learn how to depend upon our guide totally. Is that not correct? We need to learn in this world when we come out of the baptistry and, and we, we begin as we go to our extraction point where we are extracted and taken home to, to heaven and safety during this, this sojourn through the wilderness of sin, we need to learn to depend totally upon our guide and savior, Jesus Christ. He is our guide. He is perfectly trained by his earthly sojourn and his survival experience here. He knows 
Does the scripture not say he can identify with us and what we go through because he has been tempted in every way as we are? You see, his survival experience here, his training here as God in the flesh, helps him to be sympathetic to us and to lead us through this wilderness. You see, there's so many parallels. This is a world wherein we must learn how to depend upon our guide, deal and do away with our fears, overcome and conquer immense obstacles, all of the while learning how to avoid deadly predators like the snake, like the roaring lion. And still while we're doing that, we must keep focusing on our God-given mission while we're here. We have a mission, right? Seeking to save the lost, yes. Daily engaging the enemy while all of the while avoiding being spiritually killed or captured. And then eventually one day we will reach our extraction point wherein we will be airlifted back to our new home in the safety of heaven just like Jesus. And so as I consider those illustrations and the parallels, just like those Hollywood celebrities would probably never go out into the wilderness on this show, Running Wild, without his guidance, and certainly they wouldn't survive very long if they were out there for an extended period, we couldn't even begin this sojourn toward our extraction point home to heaven were it not for the blood of Jesus Christ as was so beautifully, beautifully portrayed this morning during communion in so many ways. And certainly we couldn't survive in this wilderness of sin without the blood of our Savior. But you know what? Without him beside us every step of the way, but you know what the beauty is? The absolute beauty of that is that God gives us both. He gives us both guidance, his blood, and his presence throughout this journey. For he himself has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we may boldly say, the Lord is my helper, I will not fear, Hebrews 13, five and six. Not only do we have his presence, his guidance, and the wisdom of all of his earthly survival experience to help us, and it's all right here. This is our survival guide. That's what this is. This is our survival guide. And, and Jesus put everything we needed to know in here so that, so that we, can, we can look at it and we can say, wow, okay, that's how I survive that. That's how I get through this. That's how I conquer that fear and, and all of these things. And not only that, but right here in this survival guide, it's absolutely incredible. We have right there in that survival guide a detailed account of every one of the enemy's favorite traps and tactics and weaponry, don't we? Everything the enemy comes at us with while we're on this journey with our heavenly guide, every trap, every tactic, every weapon that the enemy has, we got a detailed account not only of how he acts, how he uses it, what his favorites are, but how to successfully detect, diffuse, deflect, and defeat every last one of them. This is an awesome survival guide. Because we have the knowledge right here of how to defeat them, the Apostle Paul says in 2 Corinthians 10, three through five, though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty in God for pulling down strongholds, casting down arguments and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God. 
He said, hey, we got the answers. We have the survival guide. We know. We know. So we've got the survival guide. We've got Jesus, our guide, walking through it with us, helping us face our fears, overcome things, bailing us out, keeping us away from those things that can tear us apart, showing us the dangers of the roaring lion. So here's the question. With this magnificent guide in hand, the survival guide, and with the Son of God as our guide walking through us, why is it that so many Christians don't make it all the way through to their extraction point and date to go home to heaven? Why is it, with all of those advantages, that Christians don't make it, some, to that extraction point and home to safety? Why? Y'all known people that started out as Christians and got lost somewhere along the way? Probably you can think of faces and people that were in these pews at one time that are no longer here. Every church has them. How does that happen? Here's how. Because they were somehow, because they somehow forgot or were lulled into neglecting the fact that from the very moment they were baptized into Christ for the forgiveness of their sins, that then, at that point, they are at war with the world and indeed the devil himself. That's why. Because they somehow forgot or got lulled into neglecting the fact that from the very moment that they declared their freedom and independence from the law of sin and death in the waters of Christian baptism, that is nothing short of an all-out declaration of war for their soul as far as Satan is concerned. The moment, the moment that they became a Christian, all-out war as far as Satan is concerned. War, full war. And Satan is going to unleash the very hordes of hell and empty his entire evil arsenal in seeking to defeat them on this journey, in seeking to derail them, in seeking to take them down before they get to that extraction point and are taken home forever. Listen, here's where it gets real. If you don't think that every single day out there is an all-out war for and assault on your very soul, then you are already defeated. If you don't think every day that Satan is in an absolute war for your soul, that he is going to fight with everything he's got to take you with him, take you down before you are before you follow your heavenly guide all the way to that extraction point and are taken home, if you don't understand it is war, you've already lost. You're either already a prisoner of war, an MIA, or a casualty of that war because none of those three groups ever see much of a battle either anymore. And while today in some of, our, some of our sensitized, sterilized, civilized, 
world, we don't like to acknowledge the fact it's uncomfortable for us to use the term war. But brethren, I want to tell you the Bible's real clear about that. Are we a people that, that put Bible things in Bible terms? Are we a people that say Bible things in Bible ways, do Bible things in Bible ways? Yeah, okay. The Bible is incredibly clear and unflinching in its usage of warlike terms. To describe our earthly journey with Jesus to our heavenly extraction point and what Satan's gonna do to us or try to. Listen, these words are common in the Bible. You ready? Fight. It's a fight. Battle. Wrestle. Conflict. War. Warfare. Those are all Bible terms. Open with me in your Bibles. If you don't think the, the war's real every day, open with me in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 6, would you please? Ephesians chapter 6. I want you to watch these battle terms. This isn't just a daily walk in the park, this Christianity, this conversion to Christ and the ensuing journey till we're taken out of this life and off this earth. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 10 through verse 12. Finally, my brethren, notice this is written to the blood washed. This is written to Christians. My brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we do not wrestle, there's one of those terms, against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. If you do not think there is a daily, and in fact a second by second battle going on for your soul as far as Satan is concerned, ever since the moment that you became a child of God, you better wake up and think again. You better wake up. Verse 13. Look what he says. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day. And having done all to stand, that's the whole point. You've got to put on this armor. Why you got to put on armor if you're just going to a golf match? Why have you got to put on armor if you're going to tea? This is a war. And Paul's trying to get our brethren in first century Ephesus to understand this is an all-out war for your soul. Stand therefore, verse 14, having girded your waist with truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness, having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace, and above all, taking the shield of faith with which you'll be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked one. Take the helmet of salvation, the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit, being watchful to this end, with all perseverance and supplication for all the saints. Why do you think verse 18's in there? Why do you think verse 18's a part of this context? He's just told them, it's going to be war, and you better be ready, and you better put on the full armor of God, and oh, by the way, you better be praying for your brethren. You know why? Because they're in a war too. Some of them may not make it. This is war. And if you look at those, it's a point that's been made many times, but for some of our younger people that may not have heard it before, just a quick, quick point here. If you look at all of those individual parts of the armor, none of them guard the back, they all guard the front, the breastplate, the helmet, the, uh, you know, the back is wide open. What does that mean? It means we as Christians need to stand back to back and fight. 
We need to cover each other's back is what the point is. Because if you turn and run from the battle, your back is exposed. You know what they tell you? If you go in, into the wilderness where there's bears or cougars or mountain lions, they tell you that if you see one of them, make yourself as big as you can, don't run. The minute you run, that signals that predator to come after you. And if that predator comes after you from behind, usually a cougar or these big cats will take you right by the neck, as will a bear. That's what they're going to do. All of these elements of armor protect you in the front, but if you turn and run from the battle with Satan, if you forget it's a battle and you take it for granted or you decide, you decide to turn and flee, he is going to be all over you. You lose. In Hebrews chapter 11, if you'll turn there, do you know what those great heroes of the faith were commended for? Turn to me to Hebrews 11. The Old Testament faithful of God were commended, in many cases, for the fact that they did not fail to recognize or to faithfully respond to the warfare that their enemies sought to engage them in and defeat them with. They were heroes of the faith and they're in chapter 11 because they understood it was a war and that they needed to respond in kind against these spiritual forces as it were. Hebrews 11, look at verse 32. Watch this, look at these, look at these terms. What more shall I say? Time would fail me to tell of Gideon and Barak and Samson and Jephthah, also of David and Samuel and the prophets who through faith subdued kingdoms, worked righteousness, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, watch these terms, quenched the violence of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, out of weakness were made strong, became valiant in battle, turned to flight the armies of the aliens. There's five words right there in verse 34 that says this is a war for your soul. This is not to be taken lightly. Violence, escape, strong, battle, and armies. You ever heard the saying, hey, them's fighting words, right? That's not just a northern thing, is it? You know what? Hebrews 11:34. them's fighting words. There's five of them right there in one verse. This is a battle. This is not to be taken lightly. We need to understand the assault that we are under. The Apostle Paul, as we've already read, in describing our Christian confrontations in 2 Corinthians 10, 3 through 5, use these words. War, warfare, weapons, casting down strongholds, and captivity. Those are in just three verses. Now, we understand from Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 12 that our battle is not against flesh and blood. Understand this. Our, our fight's not with each other. Sometimes we get a little messed up with that. Our battle's not amongst ourselves. Our battle is not even with the people of the world. It isn't. Our, they are not the primary problem, okay? Understand it. Our battle is not against flesh and blood, okay? However, having said that, Satan, who is the cause of our problem, the one that our battle is against, has no problem using people who are under his control to try to stop us from sticking with Jesus through this wilderness. 
while it's not the people that are the problem, it's Satan behind those people, he'll still use them. Satan will use anything he can. He wants you so bad. He'll use anything. he use other people. Didn't he use people against Jesus? Remember the scribes, Pharisees, Roman soldiers? Remember them? Judas? Yeah, he used people against Jesus. But just a quick little side note here. Do you wonder, like I do, if maybe that's why Jesus prayed for those Roman soldiers and said, Father, please forgive them for they know not what they do? He knew that Satan was the one behind this whole thing and that these guys were just pawns, as it were. He knew that. I think sometimes we could pray for those who hurt us a little easier if we understood who the real enemy was. And didn't Jesus, speaking of people, didn't Jesus teach even before that in Matthew 10, 35 and 6 that he had come to set a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, and that a man's enemies would be those of his own household? Yeah, he did. In Philippians chapter 1 and verse 30, the Apostle Paul mentions a conflict that the people had seen involving him. It was probably, the, the incident that he refers to there is probably the incident in Acts 16 where he and Silas were thrown into jail and put in stocks and all of that. They were, that happened to them because of the slave girl's masters the magistrates and the multitude there in Acts chapter 16 happened because people were being used against Paul by Satan. Paul alludes to this same thing in 1 Thessalonians 2.2. But, and you can turn to 1 Thessalonians 2.2 if you'd like, but it would seem from 1 Thessalonians 2.2 that, well, it wouldn't only seem that way, it is true that, that this warfare against his divine mission by people, Satan using people to try to stop the spread of the gospel, didn't work. We know it didn't work. It did not discourage or prevent him from faithfully continuing to present the gospel to those people. 1 Thessalonians 2, 1 and 2. Paul says, For you yourselves know, brethren, that our coming to you was not in vain, but even after we had suffered before and were spitefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we were bold in our God to speak to you the gospel of God in much conflict. What's Paul's point? Yeah, the battle's real. Yep. And they fought hard, but you know what? We continued with the mission. The mission? Tell everybody who can about Jesus Christ. Yep, we didn't stop. And it's interesting, that word translated conflict, according to David Lipscomb, means this. The word implies a struggle for a prize and is here used to denote the Christian's position in the world. He is fighting and there are many adversaries. Wonder what that prize was. You know what that prize was, don't you? Souls, his own soul as well. Now, Satan doesn't just use people try to stop us. He also, as Peter reminds us in 1 Peter 2, verse 11, he uses fleshly lusts. Peter says in that passage, Beloved, I beg you as sojourners and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lusts, which 
war, there's our word again, which war against the soul. And it's not only fleshly lusts. If we were to read some of the other New Testament passages, we would find some of the other weapons of war that Satan uses to try to stop us on our journey with Jesus to our heavenly extraction point would include discouragement, Colossians 3.21, and despair, 2 Corinthians 1 and verse 8. Satan ever tried to discourage you in your Christianity? If there's a person in here that can say no, I desperately need to talk to you after services. Discouragement, despair. All weapons he tries to use to get us, to get separated from our Savior, to get us kind of off track, to get us off into the wilderness, to not stick with our Savior and guide. And it's extremely noteworthy to consider how the Apostle Paul uses very war descriptive terms in his epistles to his young protege, Timothy. Have you, have you ever thought about that? Turn with me to 1 Timothy chapter 1. 1 Timothy chapter 1. We're going to begin in verse 18. 1 Timothy chapter 1. Verse 18 and 19. Look what it says. This charge I commit to you, son Timothy, according to the prophecies previously made concerning you, that by them you may wage the good warfare. Timothy, you have got to fight the spiritual evil of this world. You have got to fight Satan. You've got to wage the good warfare, having faith and a good conscience, which some have rejected, suffering concerning the faith. I can read this right. Having faith and a good conscience, which some, having rejected concerning the faith, have suffered shipwreck. There, I knew I could do it. Please notice this as you consider that passage. Paul says, Timothy, this is a charge to you. Now, there's another place that Paul uses that same language, and we, we focus on that place all the time in the church. We, we talk about how important it is, and don't get me wrong, it is, it is eternally life and death important. When Paul says in 2 Timothy 4, 1 and 2, I charge you therefore before God and the Lord Jesus Christ who will judge the living and his dead, it is appearing in his kingdom, preach the word. Paul says, I charge you, preach the word, be ready in season, and that's highly important, but listen, we often don't use that same kind of, of importance when it comes to waging the good warfare, and yet Paul uses the same word. I charge you with it. It's the same word. It's the same import. It's the same level of you've got to do this. I charge you with this, Timothy. You've got to fight. You've got to wage the good warfare. I would also notice in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 18 and 19, the waging the good warfare is what is done by those who have faith and a good conscience. Do we have faith and a good conscience? And we'll wage the good warfare. We'll keep fighting Satan. I would be seriously remiss if I did not also mention the Apostle Paul's admonition to young Timothy to fight. He actually uses that word, not once but twice in the same sentence. Look in 1 Timothy 6 and verse 12. Look what he says to Timothy. 
the conclusion of his first epistle to Timothy, he says, fight the good fight of faith. Lay hold on eternal life. Do you think there's a reason he put fight the good fight, lay hold of eternal life? Do you think it's maybe because you can't lay hold on eternal life if you don't fight the good fight? I'm guessing that's probably why those follow one on the other. Timothy, you can't lay down, you can't surrender, you can't stop, you can't allow yourself to get to the point that you don't think it's a battle anymore. Timothy, you're gonna have to fight the good fight. Lay hold of eternal life, Timothy, to which you were also called and have confessed a good confession in the presence of many witnesses. Those words sound familiar. Timothy, you gotta fight the good fight. Sound familiar? Remember what Paul said at the end of his writings that we have? What did he say? He said, I have what? I have fought the good fight. I've kept the faith. I finished the race. Paul himself knew it was a battle. He knew it was a war all the way to the end, one that he could not stop fighting. Now, most all of us know, just, just as another side note here, most all of us know that secular history would tell us how the Apostle Paul, who said, I have fought the good fight, died, right? Most of us know that he died under the headsman's axe for doing exactly that, for fighting the good fight. But did you know how Timothy died, according to secular history? You know how Timothy died? Timothy, for the same reason, for fighting the good fight, died and went home to get his crown from the Lord as well. And this is how secular history tells us that Timothy died. Apparently, he continued to wage the good warfare and fight the good fight just as Paul did. According to Fox's Book of Martyrs, it says this, Timothy was the celebrated disciple of St. Paul and Bishop of Ephesus where he zealously governed the church until 97 AD. At this period, as the pagans were about to celebrate a feast called Catagogian, or Catagogian. Timothy, meeting the parade, severely reproved them for their ridiculous idolatry, which so exasperated the people that they fell upon him with their clubs and beat him in so dreadful a manner that he died of his bruises two days later. That's how Timothy, we're told Timothy died. But he never never stopped waging the good warfare. He never stopped the good fight. He realized it was a war. So he went home to get his crown. Same as the Apostle Paul for that. Listen, if we ever want to get safely to our earthly extraction point and be airlifted to heaven, to home, to receive our crown of eternal life from the Lord, then we've got to complete the mission. We've got to keep going with the Savior and guide all the way through this wilderness. Never giving in, giving up, or giving out. Fully and faithfully following this survival guide. Following our Savior, our Redeemer, our friend, and our guide, Jesus Christ, all the way, because that is the only way, John 14 and verse 6. No man, no man, doesn't matter who he is, doesn't matter what he does, no woman, nobody, no man comes to the Father except through me, is what our friend and guide told us in John 14, verse 6. And so, with some of those thoughts in mind, 
I want to take you to one of the greatest battle scenes in the entire Bible, in my opinion. One of the greatest, most powerful, and most encouraging, it's encouraging, battle scenes in all of Scripture. One that indicates exactly what I just said, that, that if we stay with the Savior, we can't lose. The battle and the victory are ours as long as we stay with our friend and guide. We get as close to our friend and guide going through this wilderness that we possibly can. That's the only way we can make it to our heavenly extraction point. This battle scene is one that the Apostle John was given by God while John was exiled on the island of Patmos. Guess, guess what he was exiled for? For fighting the good fight, not quitting. He says right in the beginning chapter of Revelation. He's there because of the, the word of God. Because he did not stop the fight. He did not surrender. He did not give in. He did not give up. He did not flee. And he said, that's why I'm here. And so while he was there, God gave him this incredible picture of the victory those have who continue to do exactly that. John gets this picture after all of the other apostles who have fought the good fight have gone home to get their crown. He's the last one of the apostles left. But even all of their deaths did not stop him from fighting the good fight onward. Let me give you a few scenes leading up to it. You can just kind of take notes on a couple of verses leading up to this battle scene. This, this battle scene that I just want to leave you with this morning because it just charges me up. Leading up to it. In Revelation 12, 17, we see that the dragon goes to make war against those who keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus Christ, Revelation 12, 7. In Revelation chapter 13, and again, just a few quick clips leading up to this scene. In Revelation 13, we see the dragon give his authority to a great beast, which thereafter appeared unstoppable as he waged war against and defeated the saints of God. That's chapter 13. So you got, you got this serpent making war against God's faithful. You got him giving his authority to this great beast, which is incredibly powerful, actually defeats the saints of God for a while. Then in Revelation 17, we see where the kings of the earth join the beast. So now you got the serpent, the beast, and the kings. The power is just getting bigger here. The kings of the earth join the beast and how, as it says in Revelation 17, 14, these will make war. There's our term again. There's no getting around the fact this is a war. These will make war with the lamb. And here's the part I love. And the lamb will overcome them for he is the Lord of lords, the king of kings, and those who are with him are called, chosen, and faithful. Isn't that an encouraging verse? Here they all are, here's the serpent, here's the beast, here's the kings, here's the power, here's all this stuff. And they're gonna make war against the lamb. Lord of lords and the king of kings and those who are with him, the called, chosen, the faithful. I'll tell you where I wanna be in this war, right there. The called, the chosen, and the faithful. But we aren't even at the battle scene yet. 
This all just leads up to that final faithful, victorious battle scene for all of those who will just continue with their friend and guide, the living word of the living God, Jesus Christ, the King of kings, the Lord of lords. That battle scene is in Revelation 19. And this gives me hope when Satan tries to discourage me. This gives me hope when Satan comes in there and tries to separate me from following, following my heavenly guide. This gives me all of the courage that I need. Watch this, Revelation 19, here we are at the battle. How John, John sitting there on the island of Patmos must have just, just, can you imagine some of the other prisoners looking at him and he's just saying, yes! I don't know if he said that or not, the scripture doesn't say, but this had to have charged him up so much because he knew he was one of those faithful and there was nothing Rome could do to take that away from him. And brethren, there's nothing the world can do to take this away from us. If we aren't in that number, that's on us. Revelation 19, look at this battle. Verse 11. I saw heaven open and behold a white horse and he who sat on him was called faithful and true and in righteousness he judges and makes war. Yes, Jesus makes war. His eyes were like a flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns. He had a name written that no one knew except himself. He was clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies, that's a, that's a fighting word, and the armies in heaven, clothed, in fine linen, white and clean, followed him on white horses. Now here's the thing you gotta understand before we continue. Don't miss this. Throughout the book of Revelation, there are many places starting way back in chapter three where whenever you see those clothed with fine white linen are guess who? Christians, because they've washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the lamb. Let me give you references if you're taking them. For time's sake, I'm not gonna go read them all. Here they are. Revelation chapter three, verse four, five, and 18. Revelation chapter six, verse 11. Revelation chapter seven, verses nine through 14. All of those set the precedent and prove to us that the, the ones who are clothed in, in these white linen, white robes, are God's people who have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the lamb. So, so when we see these armies in heaven clothed in fine linen, white and clean, it's talking about the saints. It's what it's been talking about all the way through in that terminology. It's talking about the saints and they're behind him. Verse 15 says this, now out of his mouth goes a sharp sword that with it he should strike the nations. Um, didn't I read somewhere where, you know, this is the sword of the spirit, the word of God, yeah, I did. That he should strike the nations and he himself will rule them with a rod of iron. He himself treads the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of almighty God. And he on his robe and on his thigh, a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. There's no mistaken in this, this illustration, this picture that God draws for John. There's no mistaken that this, this entity on the white horse is the Lord Jesus Christ, the Word of God, the Word became flesh. And behind him are those who have followed him through the wilderness, followed him through the tribulation, washed their robes and made them white. Verse 19, here comes the battle. We know the two sides, we've described them at length. Verse 19, and I saw the beast, the kings of the earth, and their armies, that's a fighting word, 
gathered together to make war, that's a fighting word, against him who sat on the horse, that's Jesus, and against his army. We are the army of the Lord, the song says, and that's who we are following Jesus. That's two sides are drawn up and they clash. Look at the next verse. I don't care how, be how powerful the beast was. He can't beat my king. Then the beast was captured. And with him the false prophet who worked signs in his presence, by which he deceived those who received the mark of the beast and those who worshiped the image. These two were cast alive into the lake of fire burning with brimstone. Guess what? The beast is defeated. The king reigns. Those behind him, they're victorious. But it doesn't stop there. We see the beast and the fall, this, this beast that thought he was so strong and the false prophet thrown into the lake of fire. We move over to chapter 20 and look what else we see in verse 9 and following. Talks about even more battle. Talks about how they went up on the breadth, Revelation 20 and verse 9, of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city and fire came down from God out of heaven and devoured them. Then the devil who deceived them was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and the false prophet are, we just read about, and they'll be tormented day and night forever and ever. It's not just the beast and the false prophet that get thrown in the fire in this illustration. Satan himself goes in. I love that, don't you? Satan's cooked, period. And guess what? The king I follow, still king. It's on to talk about the great white throne judgment and those whose names are not written in the Lamb's book of life being thrown into that same lake of fire. You see, in order to be in the Lord's army, in order to be clothed in white linen, you have to have your name registered in his army. Your name has to be on his roll call. It's called the Book of Life. And your name is written in the Book of Life when you are baptized into Christ and have your sins forgiven and, and you come up a new creation. You come up clothed in white linen as the Re Book of Revelation describes it, but you come up cleansed by the blood of the Lamb, made white and fresh in his purity. So as we get ready here to close in a few minutes, and in conclusion, don't lose sight, I don't care how young or how old you are, don't lose sight of the fact that it is an absolute war out there for your soul. There's a war going on that is all out all the time for your soul. It begins the moment you are baptized into Christ, you become one of the brethren in Christ, one of the saints, one of those washed. Because at that moment you no longer belong to Satan and he will stop at absolutely nothing to get you back. And we say this often when a person's baptized, but we seldom say it any other time. But I'm here to tell you once again, he will stop at absolutely nothing because he wants you in that lake of fire with him, period. The good news is, the wonderful news is, as long as we understand that and stay in the fight with the Savior, walking through this wilderness with him, we don't lose his, let go of his hand, we don't let go of the survival guide, we use it as our guide, we stick with him, we can make it all the way because the, the, the serpent can't get to him. So I ask, where are you this morning? Have you already declared your independence from sin and Satan? by being born again of the water and the spirit, baptized into Christ for the forgiveness of your sins? 
If you've already done that and therefore come up out of that baptistry to a now suddenly hostile world of, of sin and you're trying to go forward with the Savior as your guide, is your name registered in his book or not? If it's not, we'd love to help you start that journey this morning. Maybe, though, you're POW. Maybe the drug of this world has gotten to the point in your life that you don't maybe realize your condition. But maybe you're POW, somebody who started outright but somehow gave up somewhere along the line and was recaptured by Satan. <laughs> if so, we'd love to launch a rescue mission this morning. We just need a signal from you that that's where you are because we need to know your location spiritually. Maybe you're an MIA. Maybe you're somebody who started out with the Lord as your guide but just stopped to linger. Maybe got a little bit sidetracked. Maybe, maybe got soft, softly lulled to sleep by Satan and, and simply lost sight of the Lord as, as you just kind of meandered off the trail. Yet you haven't, you see, you're not a POW yet. You haven't been located by Satan and taken captive again, but you're not with the Lord. You're kind of missing in action somewhere in between the two. If you call out to us in love this morning, let us know you're there. We'll come and get you. Or thirdly, fourthly, four. Or fourthly, maybe you're still, and I hope you are, Maybe you're still a strong, faithful, hard, fighting, fighting, yes, fighting, and hard-working, word-following soldier of Jesus Christ. You're fully clothed this morning in the armor of God. You got the sword of the Spirit in hand, and you are ready to take on and defeat whatever comes next as you fight the good fight and wage the good warfare for your own eternal soul as a good and faithful soldier of Jesus. If you're one of the first three I mentioned, we're going to sing a song in just about 30 seconds here and ask you to come to the front for the help you need. But if you're this last one, ready to go, you're, you're fully clothed in the armor of God, you are, you are a good and faithful soldier, then if one of those people that meets the first three categories comes down front here in just a minute when we stand and sing, then you come down front and you sit with them. And you let them know you're ready to turn around and go back and get them and help them to safety because that's what we need. This morning, if we can help you with any of those things, please come to the front as we stand and sing, or if you're watching this live stream, get a hold of us as soon as possible. We'll help however we can. Let us stand and sing now. Come to the front if you have a need. <laughs> 